Welcome to Life Church Bath, and thank you for choosing this message. If you'd like to learn and hear more about who we are and what we get up to, please go to our website at lifechurchbath.com. Enjoy the message. Thank you, thank you. Wow. It's good to be here this morning. Are you doing all right this morning? Wave at me if you're feeling good this morning. Awesome. Love that. Well, as Jonathan said, my name's Tim. I'm married to the wonderful Maria. Maria, why don't you stand up? Yes. She's pregnant and we're having our, our first baby in April. We went to our first class last week, learned some stuff, went away a bit shocked. I'm ready. <laughs> Breathe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, it's a, it's a real, real privilege. When I say that, it really is true. It's a privilege to share with you this morning. If you're not aware, for the past five weeks now, we've been going through uh, chapters two and three in Revelation. And in chapters two and three, the Apostle John is speaking to seven churches. And Jesus is kind of laying out the way in which he wants these seven churches to be. We've been digging into the, the different letters um, written to these seven churches and kind of trying to go a bit below the surface and discover what Jesus was trying to say to those churches at that time. But we're also believing and I hope you are as well this morning, that the same spirit that spoke then to those seven churches is wanting to speak now to us in the 21st century as the body of Christ. Do you believe that this morning? That Jesus is, is wanting to speak to us as a church about how he sees us and what he wants us to be. We believe in these letters, there's an encouragement, there's a correction, there's an instruction and a promise which is really helpful to me today. So, we're going to get into this letter, which is the letter to the church of Sardius. You ready? I don't know if they can go up on the screen. It says this, To the angel of the church in Sardius write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, if you haven't kind of been tracking with us the last few weeks, that's okay. There's some imagery used here. It might be good to explain to you. The angel and the star are, are thought to be kind of the same thing, which is the leader or the, the oversight of the church, right? And the seven spirits is the spirit of God. It says, to the angel of the church in Sardius write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. That you have a reputation, other translations say a name, of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I come to you. Yet you do have a few people in Sardius who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. 
The one who's victorious will, like them, be dressed in white, and I will never brought out their name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus, we we thank you that the scriptures tell us you are the head of the church. We pray this morning that you would speak to us as a church and us individually. And we pray, Lord, that in this hour we would not miss the alarm call. We would not miss your, your voice as it wakes us up from slumber. Jesus, we pray this morning that you would wake us up that you would wake us up, Jesus. And I pray that as I I speak, God, that you would just give me the right words to say, but also that people, as they hear these words, that you do more in them than the words can do, and that you begin, even now, as I speak, to wake people up. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the title of this week's message is rise from the dead. If you're making notes, you can write that down. Rise from the dead, because Jesus is kind of his big headline comment to this church is, you are a dead church. I don't know about you, but this series is being beautiful and painful at the same time. And there's been many moments when I've done this, And I tried to get a gif up that I could play to you that would explain that oof moment, but it didn't work. But I want you to know this morning you have permission to go oof if you feel like you need to. Jesus says, the church in Sardius, you're a dead church. You know, when I first got this letter, I kind of thought, you know what, I think I've got a pretty good deal. I think this is quite a light challenge. There's no Jezebel in this passage. There's no accusation of immorality. There's no heresy. There's not even any persecution happening in Sardius. But after kind of digging into this text and going a bit deeper, I've realized that I think what Jesus is saying through the Apostle John to the church in Sardius is probably the most cutting of them all. Because he's saying to this church, you've become so sleepy that there's not even anything worth attacking. You're not even worth persecuting. You've become so passive and unoffensive in your outworking of your faith that you've become dead. Oof. You know, I heard it said by a scholar that Sardius was a perfect example for unoffensive Christianity. Sardius was a perfect example for unoffensive Christianity. And we're going to get into it a bit here and see why that was true. The first verse says this, I know your deeds, that you have a reputation or a name for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. I think as with all these letters, kind of digging into the context 
around the time that these letters were spoken into is really helpful. So I want to share with you a little bit about Sardis and the time in which this letter came and its history. And I probably will nerd out a little bit, so just bear with me. Really fascinating. Sardius, 600 to 700 years prior to this letter landing into the church, was considered to be one of the greatest cities in the world. The greatest cities in the world. Sardius was an acropolis, which is a city, a Greek kind of city that is built upon a hill in which it is surrounded by cliffs and rocks that make it kind of impenetrable. It's a fortified city because of its position. I'm going to get a picture up here. This isn't actually uh, Sardius, but it's kind of an example of what an Acropolis is. And it shows you the advantage of where they were positioned and what that meant for them. They consider themselves to be pretty protected and fortified because of these cliffs, these jagged rocks that surrounded them. But not only were they a fortified and protected city, they were also one of the most wealthy cities in the world. In fact, one of the most wealthy people in the world at one time was the king of Sardius, and his name was Croesus. And there was a, a, a phrase that was coined about Croesus, which was as rich as Croesus. So-and-so was as rich as Krosos, another way of saying that they were filthy rich. They were as rich as Krosos. Krosos was very rich. And because of that, Sardius rose to a state of prosperity and comfortability. But Sardius also plummeted to destruction under the reign of Krosos. At one time, the Persian army was coming towards Sardius and was attacking, and Krosos decided to take his entire army beyond the walls of Sardius and to meet the Persians in battle. So as they battled and they were being pushed back, Krosos and his men decided to retreat to Sardius. Krosos had his back to his city and he was confident and he was brave because he knew that he could run into the walls of his city. So he ran back to his city with all of his men and they felt safe and comfortable in their city. And it feels almost this scene is like something out of Troy or a movie because Cyrus, the king of the Persians, began to encamp around this city. And for 14 days they waited and then Cyrus said to his people, I will give a very, very large sum of money to anyone that is able to get into the walls of, Sy of Sardius. And it's, I, I can't pronounce the name of this warrior that decided that I just wouldn't even try. But he was a Persian warrior. And this Persian warrior is said to have witnessed a soldier in Sardius drop his helmet over the walls. And as the helmet fell down, it bounced between the cracks in the rocks into a crevice. And followed by it was this warrior who clambered down and retrieved his helmet and then wandered back up and got into the walls of the city. So the Persian warrior realized that there's a way in. So the Persian warrior took a party of people and he went up 
through the cracks and the crevices of the rock and penetrated the walls of the city. And when he entered the city of Sardius, he was embraced by no guard, by no watch. So just as in Troy, the city was totally overtaken. It was turned into ransack, and the city was taken into to destruction. But if this is not bad enough, if this is not terrible enough, a, fir- a certain centuries later, there is a new king reigning in Sardius. And a new army is coming towards Sardius to attack. I don't know whether this warrior read the story in a book or whatever, but a soldier named Lagaros did the exact same thing and took an army of people in the dead of the night and clambered up through the rocks and sneaked in through the walls of the city and was confronted by no guard. No one was on watch. The Sardius people had become so confident and safe that they failed to be on watch and on guard. This is the history of Sardius. And this is where Jesus, through John, speak to the church. And Jesus is correcting them through John, saying spiritually, as a church, history is about to repeat itself. Because as a church, you have a name and a reputation but you're about to get caught off guard. And I believe that as this word landed, as this letter was sent through John to this church, it was a a direct and clear word because of their history. But also, I don't know about you, but for me, it's a direct and a clear word to me. You have a a name and a reputation. You're, You're wealthy. You've got a great building. You've even got a fantastic YouTube channel. You do some good stuff. You fill in the blank. But spiritually, you've become dead inside. You know, as I was kind of studying and thinking about this this passage, I do genuinely feel this is a word for the Western church right now. And as I'm speaking, don't you know, think, oh, I wonder what church Tim's speaking about. I'm talking about the church. This is a word for the church right now. What does it look like to be dead? I can't, I can't speak for you. I can speak for myself. I can see where I've become lethargic in my faith. I can see where I no longer get excited about God in the way that I used to. I can recognize that there's a void of passion. I can see that I even become overly concerned with my image. And I've become easily distracted. Jesus' big problem with Sardius was they become good at religion in all the wrong ways. They look good on the outside, but inside they were wasting away. You know all the right cues. You can stand in all the right places. You know all the right things to say. But you're just sleepwalking through Christianity. Ooh. 
You've lost sight of the foolishness and the wonder of being a follower of Jesus. And you've become like old Sardius again. And you're making the same mistakes. And you're confident in all that you have, all that surrounds you. But inside, you've fallen asleep. And kind of the, the scary thing about the scripture is it goes on and Jesus says that, listen, if you do not wake up, I'm going to come like that Persian warrior who entered into the walls. I'm going to come like a thief and I'm going to expose how dead you really are. Oof. To, to me, it kind of feels like what is happening in the globe right now. Many of you be aware of what is happening in Asbury. But it feels like people are becoming aware of where things have been going really well on the outside, where things have appeared to be going really well in their spirituality, but inside they feel fast asleep. And people are beginning to cry out and to pray and to say, God, I want to be awake in this hour. I want to be awake in this hour. In Asbury, many have commented there's nothing kind of super special about what is happening. There's no celebrities. There's no, there's no famous worship band. There's just people saying, God, I want to be awake. God, I, I want to be, I want to be, I want to be back in that place that I used to be with you. I want to wake up. And, and Asbury is really being led and pioneered by this, this, this desire to pray. In fact, the whole thing that happened in Asbury was started by people who gathered to pray. There was about five people in the room, and simply they decided that they didn't want to leave the room. And they never did. And it's carried on for two weeks or whatever it is now. An important thing to state is this word wake up is also the same word as watch. And the word watch is used a lot in the New Testament. And often when the word watch is used, prayer is not far away. I want to suggest with you this morning that, that kind of a sign that there is life in your spirituality is that you begin to prioritize prayer. I think prayer becomes a priority to people that are awake. Paul writes in, in Colossians 4, devote yourself then to prayer, being awake, being watchful. Devote yourself to prayer, being watchful, being awake. Jesus said in the garden, will you not just stay awake a little longer and pray with me. Prayer, I think, is such an important sign that we still have a pulse. 2 Timothy 3 verse 5, Paul is speaking to Timothy and, and he's warning Timothy, Timothy, hey, there are some terrible things that are going to happen. Timothy, people are going to drift away from the faith. And this is what it's going to look like, Timothy. They will have a form of godliness but they will be void of all power. Mofrat translates it. They will, though they will keep up a form of religion, they will have nothing to do with it as a force. 
Phillips translates it. They will maintain a facade of religion, but their conduct will deny its validity. Jesus says in Luke 26, Woe to you that all men speak well of you. I'm going somewhere with this. I'm not in any way suggesting that we should go out there and kind of stir up a scene, maybe put something offensive on Twitter and stir up, you know, make something, offend some people. But I am suggesting that Jesus is saying to the Sardius church and maybe to us today that maybe, just maybe, you've allowed the culture that you exist in to lull you into a place of sleep and surrender your power. Maybe, just maybe, you've become so pleasing to the culture that you exist in that you've started to, you've started to snooze. John Tyson comments that secularism is ultimately the privatization of our faith. What does he mean by that? In the secular age that we live in, society couldn't really care less what you think or you feel or you believe about God as long as what you think and you feel and you believe about God stays within your heart. Or as long as you as long as what you think and you feel and you believe about God is like a little totem in your heart, you can believe whatever you want. But the moment that what you think and you feel and you believe about God becomes so overwhelming that it starts to leak out of your life, society says, no, get it back inside of you. I felt like when I was thinking about this scripture, God really spoke to me and said this. The culture of this world, and I'll say especially the Western church, is like a warm room on a Sunday afternoon. And as followers of Jesus, if you do not watch, you will fall asleep and become dead inside. The culture of this world is like a warm room on a Sunday afternoon. And if you do not watch, you'll fall asleep. See, Jesus, through the Apostle John, was not speaking to unbelievers in Sardius. He was speaking to the church. He wasn't saying you're going to abandon the faith. He wasn't saying you're going to reject God. He was saying you're just going to become unoffensive and balanced and reasonable in your walk with God. God will become and is becoming like a little totem, a cute totem within your heart. And you're starting to fall asleep. Oof. We're going to move on to what the, the, the verse 3 and 4 says, because be encouraged, there's, a, there's an instruction in this scripture about how we as a people stay awake in the 21st century, how we stay awake. But first, I want to give you a bit of encouragement because there's also a promise to, this, to, to this, uh, the people in Sardius in verse 4 that I'm going to read. I'm really grateful that in these letters and throughout the scriptures, 
God is always speaking to individuals. Did you know that God wants to speak to you individually this morning? That God doesn't speak to crowds or masses, but he wants to speak to individuals. And, and, and Jesus says to this church in Sardius, I'm not speaking about all of you, because there are some of you who have been faithful, who have stayed awake. This is what he says. Yet you have a few people in Sardius who have not soiled their clothes, and they will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white, and I will never pull out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Let me explain this. He says, you have not soiled your clothes. Okay. He's not saying the rest of you have some pretty um, upset tummies. But as some of you that have not soiled your clothes, he's not saying it in that way. What he's saying, and the scholars kind of would agree, is that the, the white garments that he's referring to in that kind of context that it was written in are the white garments that would be given to someone when they came out of the baptism tank, right? So when someone was baptized, they would come out and they'd be given a white garment. And what the scholars would suggest is that what Jesus is saying to this church is, there's some of you who have not forsaken the vows you made when you got baptized. There's some of you who have stayed true and faithful to the vows that you made. And his promise is that those of you who have done that will walk with me. But there's also some of you who have, but it's okay because if you hear and you receive this word, there's an opportunity to again renew your vows, to wake up and to walk with me again. And then he goes on and he says, and your name will not be blotted out, the book of life. This word book of life, this phrase goes all the way back to Moses and is used constantly in Revelation ultimately referring to eternity. Your name will not be blotted out the book of life. This is really, I think, pretty good news. If you can turn, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to verse 2 and 3. I want to talk a bit now about how, really just from the Scriptures, how the Apostle John suggests that we are to stay awake as a church. I'll read it to you. Verse, verse 3. Wake up. It's the same word as watch. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. Remember, therefore, what you received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. First of all, I think in all of this, the call is to wake up. And the good news this morning is whether you are sitting here and you're starting to become aware of some dead wood in your faith, or maybe you're sitting here realizing that you feel pretty void of all life. You feel pretty completely and utterly dead in your spirituality. Whatever end of the spectrum that you're on, I want to tell you that it's okay. We just started Lent, and soon we're going to be coming up to Easter. And this is good news, that Jesus, the Son of God, is the resurrection and the life. And he, oh my goodness, he is the master of bringing dead things to life. That's what he does. So whether you're like, 
I'm starting to be aware that there's been a bit of sleepiness, there's been a bit of dead wood, or whether you're on the other end and you say, well, I don't know, I just feel completely dead. I feel completely indifferent. I feel completely asleep. Whatever end of the spectrum you're on, the good news is Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And, and so let's, let's get into this. Number one, strengthen what remains. This is his advice. Jesus says there's some elements of your spirituality that are good, but even they are about to die. So strengthen what remains. A key to waking up spiritually is strengthening what remains and still has life. Jesus is saying, I'm calling you to new depths, not new breadth. The way to wake up is not accumulating more information about God, but it's a radical call to simplicity, to strengthen what remains. I think one of the big challenges I've faced in my own walk with God is, and I think it kind of reflects the society and the culture that we live in, but we're so bombarded by new ideas and new kind of information about God that we, that we rarely allow truth to really sink into a deep place in our heart. Like when God shows us something, when he reveals something to us, we rarely give it the space and the attention and the time to really sink and begin to bear fruit in our heart. To really sink into a place of the word became flesh. To really sink in a way that it becomes a part of our fabric of our being. Jesus is saying, I want you to strengthen what remains. I want you to allow those truths to be strong and to grow inside of you. I think, you know, I, I was thinking about this. That complexity can only be built upon simplicity. Complexity can only stand, it can only be built upon simplicity. And in the scriptures we see that the only foundation for our faith is the revelation of Jesus. The revelation of Jesus is the foundation by which all theology stands. You hear me this morning? The cornerstone, the foundation of our faith is the simplicity of the gospel, which is the revelation of Jesus. And God is saying, I want you to go into new depths in the simplicity as much as you, you pursue the complexity. I was, uh, I was walking a few years ago. Um, by my house, and I was processing a few things with God. And I felt like God spoke to me into my thoughts in a way that I knew was him. And I felt there was a challenge attached to it. And he said this, an athlete never apologizes for being specific and restricted in his diet. Like an athlete never says, well, I need to stay open-minded about fast food. An athlete is not ignorant or immature about being specific about what he eats. Do you agree? 
And Jesus was saying to me, I want you to be the same. I feel specifically there's, wave at me if you're in your 20s in the room. Awesome. Don't feel judged. If you're not in your 20s, that's fine. I feel maybe it's just because I'm in my 20s as well, but I feel that there's something specific for those in your 20s this morning. I feel like God's doing something with the young adults in the world right now. I feel there's something specific about the young adults rising up, um, seeing it in Asbury. But, you know, I want to say to you this morning, if you're in your 20s, and I mean this honestly and genuinely, wrestle with the scriptures. Wrestle with them. And also ask big questions. But at the same time, I want to say to those of you in your 20s and to myself, to delve into new depths as much as you go into new breadth. That you do have permission to not go down every rabbit hole. That you do have permission to not explore every option. That Jesus wants us to go into new depths as much as we go into new breadth. That he wants us to go into the simplicity of the gospel as much as we explore the complexities of the gospel. That we'd be a people that are well acquainted, that are well acquainted, that bleed, that, that if you cut us open, we're convinced of the simplicity of the gospel, which is the revelation of Jesus as the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Delve into new depths. Strengthen the seed that was first sown into your heart. The key to waking up as followers of the way in the 21st century is strengthening what remains. It's returning to simplicity. And this leads us to the next instruction. Remember, therefore, what you received and you heard. Remember, this word remember is menamino. Exercise your imagination. Rehearse and recollect what you received. Not just what you received, but the way in which you received it. Remember what you encountered at first. You know, there's debates over who started this church in Sardius. We know it came out of the overflow of God moving in Acts 19, but there's debate over whether it was John or Paul or one of the disciples. But what we know is this. This church was not kind of a ploy for church expansion. It wasn't like, oh, well, we need a church there, you know, We need more money in the bank. This church was driven by a people who have had a radical revelation of Jesus as the only way, as the the, the one who would reveal the one true God, as the forerunner of a whole new way to exist and be human. And it was an offensive gospel to the culture they lived in. It was an unbalanced gospel. It was for Jew and for Gentile. It was for those that were far away and those that were close. And it was revealing a whole new kingdom and a whole new culture that was very different to the one that they existed in. 
Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to remember what you first received and how you received it. Remember how you were first moved. Remember, it's like the word that we had in Ephesus, return again to that first love, that first passion that you had. Remember how you felt about the Lord then. And his last suggestion to us as a people to wake up is to hold fast and repent. Hold fast and repent. And, you know, we've talked about repentance a whole lot in the last five weeks. And know that in this scripture, really, there is nothing specific that Jesus through John is suggesting that we should repent of. There's no immorality, there's no Jezebel, there's no, you know, there's, there's no corruption, there's, there's none of that. What he's inviting us to repent for is for sleepwalking. For being asleep when we were made to be awestruck by this God. For being asleep to this radical Jesus. It's a repentance for our slumber. It's a repentance for allowing the culture that we exist in to lull us into a place of sleep. And in doing so, rid us of all our power and our potency and to draw us into a place of of deadness. Oof. You know, I love to kind of sometimes in the scriptures when I read something, reverse it and just think about what it says in reverse. So let me just read it to you. Coming to an end here. Stay asleep by spreading yourself thin and letting your spirituality become shallow and palatable, but losing its potency. Forget the seed of the gospel that you first heard and received and let pride cause you to live permanently off kilter with God. That's how you stay asleep, just if you wanted to know. Spread yourself thin Let your spirituality become shallow and palatable, but losing its potency. Forget the seed of the gospel that you first received, and let pride cause you to live permanently off kilter with God. And the scripture ends, as all of the scriptures do, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Whoever has ears, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Going to create an opportunity here now to just respond in any way we want to to this word. I believe that Jesus isn't that interested in a church that has big names and famous leaders. He doesn't care that much for facilities and global connections. If there isn't a people that are abandoned to the rawness of the reality of being a follower of Jesus. I don't think he cares how big the church is or how big the platform is or how much money you have. Jesus is saying, I'm coming like a thief. I'm coming like a thief, like the Persian warrior that climbed the walls. And some of your churches are gonna get shocked because I'm not interested in your platforms. I'm coming to test your pulse. Are you still alive? Are you still awake? We all kind of, I don't know about you, but to that I say amen. But then Jesus says, 
And what about you? And I feel the conviction of the Lord as he begins to expose places in my heart that I've been asleep. Tim, you've become too concerned with your image. You've become too concerned with your reputation, with what others think about you. Tim, you're too excited about your influence. You care more about being accepted and pleasing to culture. You're comfortable because you've experienced some things in the past, but you've become a little bit sleepy inside. You've become a little bit sleepy inside. I wonder if the band can just play something, but I really, I just want to create an opportunity this morning for individuals to respond to this word in ways that they want to. There's a call to strengthen what remains, to, to remember what you first received and to repent. And wherever you're at this morning, I want to create an opportunity to respond to the Lord and ultimately say to God, God, I want to be awake in this hour. God, I have been a little bit sleepy, a little bit lethargic, but this, in this hour, I want to be awake again. I want to be awake. You up for that? Cool. Why don't you stand up? You know, I love the story where, where Jesus comes to his friend Lazarus and everyone's a little bit concerned and they, they meet him on the road and said, Jesus, you, you're awesome, but you're too late. He's dead. He's gone. And when Jesus arrives at the tomb, he screams into the tomb. I added scream, thus I added that. He showered into the tomb, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus walked out of the tomb completely well, raised from the dead. And this morning I feel the Lord would like to maybe scream into our souls a little, wake up and invite us to be awake. So I really do just want to create an opportunity for you to come forward. Whenever we create an opportunity in this house to, for people to come forward, it's not because uh, you know, we've, we've trickled oil on the front or because we think that the front is the most holy place. Really coming forward it is in some ways practicality, but also I think some of it is about us kind of deciding in this period, I'm gonna actually get out of my comfortability and, and, and say something to people and to God that God, I really do wanna be awake. There's nothing super spiritual about coming to the front, but please do if you feel comfortable. Come forward and we're gonna pray. can come forward whenever you feel to come. I do feel specifically um, for people in their 20s, not just for them, but if you're in your 20s and you feel the Lord's tugging you, I want to encourage you to come forward as well. If you feel like, man, I want to be awake in this hour, I want to encourage you to come forward as well. There's also, and this is totally not related but there's a group of people I thought I want to pray for this morning as well. And it's some people in this room who, if you can just bear with me and hear this, 
I had a dream last night and I woke up and I knew that God wanted to do something in the room. That there's some people in this room who believe that a word has been spoken over them, a, a bad word, maybe it was from a friend, a family member, or maybe just not in anyone, but just received it. You received a word spoken over your life like a curse and you believe that it's never going to leave you and it's permanently on you. And I want to pray for you tonight, today, this morning, that God would remind you of what he paid for on the cross and that every curse has been paid for and that thing has no place to stick on you. So if that's you, you can come down. Um, Michelle will be here. Um, and, and we would love to pray for you for that as well. But please do keep coming forward. If you're in this room and you want to just say to the Lord, hey Lord, I haven't got it all figured out. All I know is that I've been a little bit sleepy and I want to be awake in this hour. Lord God, I want to be awake in this hour. I want to return to the radical rawness of the gospel that I first experienced. 